0: Today on I Remember, I have the privilege of talking with Eric Desenhall of Desenhall Resources, a nationally recognized high-stakes communications firm representing corporations and institutions facing controversy. Eric is an author of nine books, including his most recent Best of Enemies, co-authored with Gus Russo, about the extraordinary friendship between a CIA officer and KGB agent. Best of Enemies will be released on October 2nd and can be pre-ordered now on Amazon.com. Eric is also a trustee of the Institute for Responsible Citizenship, an organization devoted to fostering educational and career opportunities for outstanding young African American men and was a founding member of the Board of Directors of the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition.
1: Welcome to I Remember, a podcast about the power of reminiscing to increase your self-esteem and sense of meaning in life. I'm Eileen Fine. Through conversations with guests from the worlds of art, nature, science, and culture, I take you on a journey of these kinds of mindful moments that are unique to each of us, but experienced by all of us that have changed the course of our lives, all designed to give you a feel-good feeling and help you be mindful of your own moments of self-resilience and connection. That opportunity starts now. This is I Remember.
0: Hey, Eric, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So what year are you taking us back to today? What was going on?
2: I I think I'm going to take you mostly back to 1987.
0: And what was happening in that year for you? Well,
2: in the course of a couple of weeks, my mother died, I started a business, and I got married.
0: Yeah. Life happens that way, right?
2: Well, yes. I mean, she had she had gotten sick in uh, in 1986, and I had met my wife uh, shortly after uh, she got sick, and um, just uh, I, I remember some of the intense conversations around that time, and, and concluding that the the, the free spirited twenties that so many people think they're going to have, the uh, the carefree Frank Sinatra years, were just not going to happen for me. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, I think that at midlife, that's something you reflect back on. But um, I was dealt some real cards, uh, some really bad ones and some good ones. Um, but I had to respond that year to that reality. Yeah.
0: And that's a lot. I mean, that's kind of all over the place in, um, you know, in experiencing grief and love and the chance for success and failure with business, everything all at the same time. What is um, kind of a moment out of, I guess, maybe even all of those things, either collectively or, you know, each of them, of connection that you had that kind of formed formed a foundation I guess for you to be able to move on that gave you strength and a bit of clarity
2: I think that uh, you know i, I getting married um, was something I never thought that that would happen i wasn't very good at being single, and um, I didn't think that I would meet someone because I was kind of an old soul but I had to grow up quickly for different reasons, having a lot to do with being dealt a bad card, uh, parent-wise, with my mother getting sick and dying very young, and another parent who had uh, issues we won't get into, but I think that um, it was really uh, tough to be dealt cards that made me grow up quick, and I think that there is a certain sense in our modern culture, that you go through different phases in in some order and one of the notions you, know, you always hear when you go to college these are the best years of your life which well mm-hmm. you might as well shoot yourself at the end if that, those are the best years right mm-hmm. i mean you know, what, what what's after but they're not always the best years for everybody and i think that um I had to come to grips with extraordinary responsibility, extraordinarily young. And there's this one voice, I remember a friend saying to me when I got engaged as my mother was dying, you're too young, you need to go out and experience the world. And I said at the age of, you know, 23 or so, I've experienced a lot of the world and I don't think I like it that much. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is when this person came along. It's not like... The way life works is you say, I'm going to have fun until 30, and then I'm going to arrange for this person to come along at this time, and then maybe when I'm in my 60s and my parents are in their 90s, they die. That may be how it works for some. That's not how it worked for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I know there's um, there's a book by Robert Holden, Authentic Success, where he says that you know success is not a shopping list. Um, that it's a journey and I think that speaks to your experience in that there is a list and an expectation of these are all the things that should happen in this order um, but life doesn't happen that way and it, it sounds like really you had to look to create your own family um, to have a, a really strong foundation upon which to build your path you know and
2: <laughs> that that's right i mean there's a great quote that i'm going to get a little wrong from flaubert where he said uh be orderly in your personal life so you can be violent and creative in your your writing or artistic life and i think that stability is extremely important to me because i make my living two ways one is running a crisis management firm where there is not a five minute period that is stable Mm -hmm. i remember you know, years ago, I had a guy who worked for me who said, you know, you you really need uh, to be a better businessman, you need a better strategic plan. And I said, we're a crisis management firm. We're a trauma surgery room. There is no stability. We never know year to year what's going to happen. And sometimes what happens is bad. So I needed a certain, certain things to be stable because certain other things aren't stable. And the other thing that I do I write books, which is even more unstable than the crisis management business because the book world is, is rapidly dying, and unless you're one of the few people who's a runaway bestseller, you can't really rely on making a living there, and so a lot of the the wildness that I didn't experience when I was younger, I do experience as a writer. You know, when you're writing about the mafia and spies, um, that is the kind of reckless crazy type of thing one associates with being younger but I did that stuff at middle age
0: yeah and it is I mean it is true it's the power of writing and being able to take a journey um, into other worlds and then to bring that to you know vast audiences I mean that's the beauty in reading um, especially reading in long form I was reading recently about you know they've surveyed millennials and new generations about how they're reading books less they're actually reading more but what they're reading are just snippets of things and right and um what they don't know yet like what is that doing to our brains and to our ability for empathy and such um but it's an interesting thing to think about storytelling
2: well yeah, you know, I, I agree with you and my kids are millennials and I work with millennials and there is uh there is a definite difference. I mean, one of the things that um I said to a friend of mine about the difference between this generation and and mine, um is I always uh as as, as ambitious as I was I was always fascinated by my elders and betters. I always thought I had the tendency to worship my bosses, and it and and it saw them as as perfect and all knowing. My sense that I see from millennials is they already think that they're smarter than me. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't get the sense that uh, as smart as many of them genuinely are, I get no sense uh that they're saying, you know, I should hear what this guy has to say and see what road he went down. I mean, I know mm-hmm. when I was younger, uh, I hung on every word that my bosses said. And you know, to this day, I mean, one of the guys I worked for when I was very young, I was in Reagan's White House, was a legendary figure named Michael Deaver He's the first person who was ever called spin doctor to my knowledge and he died a few years ago but but I saved every time I I wrote a book and he would send me a note to this day I'm 56 years old I save every note that he ever sent me because it's important to me now that he was proud of me, uh, but I, you hear this word mentor a lot, he was my mentor, he didn't even know it, I made him my mentor, mm-hmm. I made my mentors my mentors by studying them, and I don't get the sense with the generation we have out there, as smart as many of them are and are not given credit for, I don't sense that there is that, that much interest, that there's anything to be learned from guys like me.
0: Yeah, and I wonder, you know, I, I think that sometimes too is that if that is about like what what we talk about on this podcast about connections and that they are a generation that is uber connected but in a very different way and there isn't a lot of, it's surface level connection, that there isn't a lot of depth to it um, and because of that there's kind of a loss of really what mentorship is, right, which is taking time listening, understanding um, the importance of history and the texture of history and what we can pull from it and learn from it. And most of the reason why I do this is that I hope in being able to have people like yourself that have lived, you know, rich lives, share their experiences and their connections that others can learn from it and can reflect. You know, I think Part of maybe what's a challenge for this next generation is about reflection. There's so much about immediate what's next that um, they're not taking the time. Not that they're not thoughtful, but I don't think they're taking the time to have self-reflection um, and being able to see how you know what it is that a mentor could bring to them beyond just the next success, whatever that is on, on the shopping list.
2: Yeah, no. i think it's an interesting point i mean i i think that the intelligence of the younger generation is underestimated i think that these kids are very smart i also think that where i came of uh, uh, i went out of the workforce in the 1980s where it was all about money 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 i mean mm-hmm. i left the ivy league in 1984 and you know so many people went to make money and i, I really even though I ended up making money, I didn't go to Wall Street or anything like that. But I think that one of the things that millennials have going for them is I do think that their priorities are are better than money, money, money. But what I, what I do have concern about is I was joking with one of my partners that I think that a lot of these kids want to get on a, just want to fast forward to getting on a stage where they wear a headset like Steve Jobs and tell people what they think of stuff because Steve Jobs did us a bit of a disservice by standing on that stage with a headset because now you have a lot of people who don't know anything who just want to stand on the stage with a headset. And, you know, I... They all want to do TED Talks.
0: (laughs) I'm sorry? They all want to do their own TED Talks, you know, at at, uh, and and that, that for them is like, an, again, it's a shopping list. That's the next thing in success because that's, I think, how even though I totally agree with you, I think that they are looking beyond money, their idea of success still follows a list.
2: You know, um... Yeah, and they're also looking at Mark. You know, Mark Zuckerberg and the Google guys. I mean, we we now have something we didn't have when I was growing up. I mean, even though there were always rich people and famous people, you weren't assaulted with them the way you are today. I mean, mm-hmm. I knew as a kid in South Jersey that there were rich people, but I didn't really see their houses other than occasionally driving past one in the main line of Philadelphia now. I log on to my computer and I am assaulted with the aerial view of Tom Brady and Giselle Bundchen's house. Mm-hmm. I am assaulted by the net worth of people in their 20s and 30s. You, you can't avoid it. And so it's only natural to go, well, what about me? Mm-hmm. Uh, where Where's mine? And, uh, you know, the fact is, is you're only dealing with very few people comparatively who are worth fifty billion dollars and have twenty five thousand square foot homes?
0: Right. No, exactly. So, um, so tell us about this new book that's coming out and what you know. What uh, it's very exciting and and very timely.
2: <laughs> I think so. Yeah. The, the new book is called Best of Enemies, and it is about uh, two spies, uh, two legendary figures, a CIA officer named Jack Platt, and. Agent named Gennady Vasilenko. They were assigned the task with turning each other, getting each other to betray their countries, and they didn't succeed in that. But they ended up become <clears throat> becoming, excuse me, best friends. And they ended up, through a series of accidents and calculations, uh, combining forces and to take and took down one of the worst spies in American history, Robert Hansen. Uh, some of it was unwitting, but with all the discussion nowadays about Russia, what was it, what's interesting to me is you hear terms like collusion and hacking and meddling. What I was interested in with my co-author, Gus Russo, is what do two spies do when they get up in the morning? Mm-hmm. How do they do it? Um, and that's what this book talks about. Two guys, two guys who are given uh, serious spy assignments and uh, spent decades doing it, and had some of the most extraordinary adventures you can imagine, and um, ended up becoming involved with some of the biggest operations in in history.
0: Yeah, and again, I mean, it's just it's about the journey. You know, whether your life is like what you do or what I do or something as. You know, out there as what they did, you're still living day to day. Um, and w- how do you live that life? How do you accomplish what it is that you want want to accomplish? And how are you building meaning into that? You know, I I think it's extraordinary their story and the friendship that they built, the connection that they had with each other in such a bubble world that they were able to um, have that connection with each other and what that meant.
2: Well, I think one of the things I learned from it is, is uh, I was always interested in why didn't the US and the Soviet Union blow each other up? And the answer that I ultimately concluded getting to know these two guys is we didn't really want to. Our systems hated each other, but the people really didn't have the appetite nor did the leaders to go to war, um, there—I mean—there were plenty of, of missteps and tragedies along the way. But you know, Jack, the CIA guy, was a real right-wing former Marine, rabid anti-communist, and Gennady, uh, to this day, is an old-level Soviet character and what they basically what they had in common is both of them were irreverent cowboys um Jack his, his na- nickname was literally cowboy and they came to love each other um really become close friends that didn't have the appetite to kill each other. I mean, they had the appetite to destroy traitors, they had the appetite to love their country, but um, they really found a certain degree of humanity, and I think that what's interesting is with some of the conflicts we have in the world, you do have people and and nations that really do want to kill each other, but I think in the Cold War we had leaders uh, who, who truly did not want the conflict to happen, and we had people who didn't really hate each other at their core. We hated each other's systems. And so a lot of what this talks about is, I mean, you can't make up these characters, but Mm -hmm. they were real. You can't make up a right-wing Marine CIA guy befriending uh, a Soviet communist. And, you know, talk about the journey. The way this book ended up happening is these two spies were friendly with Robert De Niro, and Robert De Niro helped keep Gennady alive when he was in prison, uh, if, in prison under the false charges of spying for the United States, which they wrongly suspected, and you know, I certainly didn't know when I got into this process, I would discover all these interesting characters. I mean, who would have believed that Robert De Niro would have kept a Russian spy alive mm-hmm. in jail right. because he sent sent him a Christmas card, and the and the gangsters in the jail said, "Oh, he knows Robert De Niro. Let's protect him."
0: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, talk about the power of connection. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I am really looking forward to it coming out. It's being released in October.
2: Yeah, October two. It's it's on it's on Amazon right now, okay. and uh, we're very we're very excited about it.
0: Well, great. I'm going to put a link up to it that everybody can check out and pre order it. And I thank you so much for this time. Um, and I wish you the greatest of success with the book, and um, and with everything that you have going on with your company, and hopefully the next book to come.
2: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed doing it. And hug your little girl for me.
0: I will. Thank you, Eric. Bye. Uh,
2: Okay, bye bye.
1: This is Eileen Fine of Power Breathwork, and you have been listening to I Remember. Eric's new book, Best of Enemies, will be released in October. Be on the lookout for it online and at your local bookstores. And visit us on our website, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook at Power Breathwork to learn more
0: about how you can create your moments of connection.
1: I'm Eileen Fine, and you have been listening to I Remember a podcast about the power of reminiscing and mindful moments of connection. To learn more about the power of reminiscing and mindfulness to help you live your best life, visit us at thetinybalcony.com.